This holiday season, give the gift of decadent, high-flavanol dark chocolate to your loved ones. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular deaths. The FDA recently issued a qualified health claim saying that high-flavanol cocoa may help prevent cardiovascular disease. It may even be a helpful tool in managing cognitive decline and improving mood. Flavonatural's Dark chocolate bars and cocoa powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate with great flavor and minimal sugar. So this holiday season, do what I'll be doing and gift your loved ones with decadent dark chocolate that has the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. Just go to flavanaturals.com and use coupon code HOFFMAN20 for 20% off site-wide. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $30. That's flavanaturals.com, coupon code HOFFMAN20 for 20% off now through December 10th. Get it in time for Christmas at flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. As many of you know, I'm pretty athletic. Uh, I like to work out. I uh, cycle and I run and I swim and I work out in the gym. Uh, But as the body ages, well, it takes a toll. And uh, orthopedic injuries are very common, but uh, orthopedic injuries are not just the province of seniors. Uh, They occur throughout life and indeed they occur in kids. So today we're going to take a look and offer a deep dive on orthopedic problems with the author of a new book, The Knee and Shoulder Handbook, The Keys to a Pain-Free Active Life. Uh, the author uh, is Dr. Alan Resnick. Uh, Dr. Resnick is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon. He specializes in arthroscopic surgery and sports medicine. He's been named a top doc in Connecticut for more than two decades. Uh, he uh, is also team physician for the U.S. Tennis Open. And easy, must be pretty good. They put their reliance in him and the New Haven's Knights professional hockey team who take a beating uh, nightly on the ice. Uh, he's widely published with over 60 journal articles, scientific journals, so, but he's also author of I've Fallen and I Can't Get Up, A Guide to Fall Risk and Prevention. That's a topic unto itself. Uh, he's got... Uh, uh, holds a number of uh, orthopedic patents because that's what uh, top orthopedists do. They actually develop their own devices. Uh, And uh, he is on a personal mission to help readers, patients, and concerned family members better understand their own road to recovery uh, by sharing decades of his orthopedic medical knowledge. Uh, The latest book, uh, as I mentioned, is the Knee and Shoulder Handbook, the keys to a pain-free active life. And Dr. Resnick, it's a pleasure having you on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for uh, making the time to discuss this with our listeners. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hoffman. It's great to be here. Indeed. Okay, well, let's let's start at the beginning because uh, there's a whole uh, new, I, I think it's actually relatively new phenomenon of Kids with lots of orthopedic injuries. I mean, you know, uh, little Johnny and little Jane used to climb on the jungle gym before all of those safety measures. They climb in the tree and they fall down and bust an arm. Uh, but uh, these days, 
uh, kids are in, engaged in sports. They're highly scheduled. Uh, they're often, uh, you know, playing a little league and uh, tackle football, uh, stuff like that. And we're seeing an increase at, at soccer. Soccer is a big thing, too. Uh, we're seeing an increase in uh, injuries and particularly among young girls. So what's going on? Yeah, I, I think um, yeah, it's, it's it's great you bring all this up. First of all, I'm a huge fan of youth sports. I think youth sports teach a lot of great skills, and they teach you know teamwork, and they can teach you know sportsmanship, and all the things that you kind of need in life to kind of be successful in so many layers, not just sports alone. So I, lo- I love the idea that we do have organized youth sports, and, and particularly some supervised youth sports. But at the same time, there are pitfalls um, that people fall into, and more parents than children, because five-year-olds don't really decide. The parents decide. And the pitfalls, one is the one-sport injury, which has probably gotten a lot of press over the years, but more so more recently, in that the parent has decided that the kid is gifted and talented at age seven or eight, or even even younger. And, um, and that's their ticket in life, you know, their ticket to a great university and, and so on, Right. Yeah, and a lot's writing on that, and we can talk a little bit about that as well uh, separately. But but um, yeah, if they have the if they have that even vision that they think the kid is going to be the next great baseball pitcher or ballerina or Tiger Woods or whatever, and they got them doing one sport day and night, and um, it's not that healthy because number one, it becomes an exclusion to other things in life that are important for growth and development, and number two is that you do get repetitive use injuries in children much more serious ones than you might get in adults because they're still actively growing. And uh, we can talk a little bit about why that is, but the first thing is that we'd say the one sport injury is a newer phenomenon that the parent puts the kid into several leagues in the same season with the same, with different teams and different coaches and things like pitch counts get blurred because they're playing in two leagues at the same time. Um, and they don't recognize the catcher is throwing more than the pitcher because the pitcher might be subbed out, the catcher is still playing and things like that. So there's overuse injuries we're seeing more and more of. Um, and um, so that's a concern. And the second thing is that the schools themselves have started to turn the corner on it, and they're starting to recruit kids who play more than one sport in different seasons because they feel like the synergy of those lessons from multiple sports make you a better athlete in your given sport. So those are two levels of concerns. And the third one is you're no good in high school if you pitched your arm out in junior high and you're no good in college, if you pitched your arm out in high school, you know, and you're no good in the majors, if you pitch your arm out in college. So I think the idea that if you get a permanent injury, while you're still growing, that you're still going to be a great player later is a little misconceived. Right. So for all those reasons, there's more questioning kids than you might have in adults. What's the youngest age that you've seen uh, a young uh, baseball player you know, in some junior league, uh, obtained Tommy John surgery. I mean, this, you know, started with, uh, you know, Major League Baseball. Yeah. Now it's ubiquitous in Major League Baseball. It's almost like a rule rather than the exception for, you know, uh, high-end pitchers. But we're seeing, uh, you know, high school kids get Tommy John surgery. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. So that would be the youngest you could see. And and the reason is, is uniquely the anatomy. I touched a little bit that kids are unique and that they're actively growing. So when you're below a certain age, you don't get the Tommy John's injury per se, but there's a growth center right where the Tommy John's injury occurs. And that growth plate is actually soft as you're growing. Because you imagine your bone grows, it creates cartilage layer first, then later that cartilage layer turns to bone as the bone advances and grows in size. 
And your body's actively remodeling that bone every day to make it the right shape, right? You, if you imagine your bone was growing the same in all directions, eventually all your bones would be meatballs, right? Mm-hmm. There wouldn't be these beautiful slender sticks that form. Uh, so what happens is your body, as you grow, your body's constantly remolding and reshaping the bones to match the forces it sees. And the areas that it's reshaping and growing are actually softened. So what the kids get who are very young is they get an avulsion fracture of the epicondyle, that little piece of bone with the Tommy John ligament. Let, let's get to excuse me. That let's get to definitions apart. because you know when we yeah. we think of fractures, we think of like you know a, a matchstick you know snapping, but an avulsion fracture right. is a right. is it is a it can be serious, but it's a different type of thing, right? Right. right. It means that the attachment of either the tendon or ligaments are pulling so strongly on the bone that it actually breaks a little piece of bone off. Right. Right. So that's called an avulsion. I'm sorry I used that term, but it really is the the tendon pulls the bone off its growth Mm -hmm. plate. Right. And that's a significant thing. Uh, And if it happens and severe and you put it back, you can actually arrest the growth in that area. It's seen also with what's called jumper's knee and also what's called Osgood Slaughter's disease, mm-hmm. where you see a very bony knee in the front, and that's a kid who's playing basketball but has knee pain all the time. They say you're having growing pains, but if it's right in front of the knee with a patella tendon, the tendon in front of your knee attaches to the tibia, the front bone at the bottom, your shin bone, that um, when that happens, then that could be a serious injury, and then you have a bump, bump for the rest of your life that's always problematic. So in any case, all these things are, are more likely in children. They're different than what we see in adults. As soon as you mature, you're more likely that the bone is harder than the ligament, and you're more likely to tear the ligament. So you have to be skeletally mature. So late in high school would be the earliest you could see a t- true Tommy John's injury when the child has fully developed and their bone is not growing anymore. Before that, it is more likely that you would get a, a, a break at the growth plate and, and that avulsion fracture. Uh, for like for the technical term of that, right, the bone gets pulled off. But kids heal so very rapidly, right? I mean, the the treatment for many of these things, whereas an adult uh, is more likely that you'd use, you know, put a piece of uh, uh, metal, a rod, or nail, or something in there. Less likely with a kid, right? Uh, yes and no, it, it, and that's that's there's a little complicated answer to that. So, okay. if you imagine the growth plate is a layer of, of cartilage, right? If you crack through it up and down let's say right and you break the bone on either side and it goes back a little bit off it might fuse across the growth plate right the two sides would glue to each other and then the growth might be disturbed the rest of the child's Mm -hmm. growth period so you could get a deformity let's say if i have my knee and i break on the inside of my knee and that heals and fuses together but the outside doesn't then my knee might bow in a lot if I break on the outside of the knee and that fuses first and I'm still growing, I might bow out. So you might become knock-kneed or bow-legged in that one side after an injury. Uh, so some of those fractures actually have to be fixed exactly perfectly with pins or screws. Mm-hmm. Whereas others, if you leave them alone, they heal. Like you put the two bones, the joke is the middle, middle of the clavicle in a five-year-old. The joke is if the two bones are in the same room, it's going to heal 99% of the time. Right. You know, because the kid can really heal that well. And they'll, as they grow, a five-year-old will remodel it. When they're adult, you never know they had the fracture. But, but you take the w- same it, child and you an, have a fracture through the knee, it would be different. But in an adult, uh, like a, a fracture of the clavicle or the collarbone, uh, that has sometimes has to be addressed because if they're not uh, aligned properly, it can be a deformity. It can actually interfere with movement, and, and it doesn't look good. You look lopsided, right? 
That's true. That's true. And and, and if it's a pitching arm, you know, there's some rules of thumb. You shorten it more than almost an inch, two centimeters. If it's angulated more than a certain amount, if the bone is tented through the muscle, which is, you know, it's not broken through the skin, but it's under the skin and there's muscle in between, those things don't tend to heal well. Um, and that shortening will give you some deformity. And if it's a throwing arm, it'll take away some of the lever of throwing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it'll be a it'll be a little more problematic. So those things need to be fixed. Whereas, you know, less than those numbers, then some most of those can be treated non-operatively without surgery. What is it with an apparent epidemic of knee injuries among young girls? It's becoming more and more common, and it, it's actually being highlighted as an issue. And uh, some places are uh, beginning uh, sort of preventive programs uh, to condition girls, young girls, uh, so that when they go out in a soccer field or with lacrosse or whatever they're about to do, uh, that they don't experience these these knee injuries. Yeah, that that's that's a really good point to bring up, and and it's an interesting little piece of history. So, when boys and girls sports were asymmetrical, and we were not treating girls fairly and equally in the sporting world, they participated less hours of play. The injury rate for ACLs for women tends to be higher than men, particularly young women. And we never noticed it because there would still be less women injuries than men. As soon as we made parity in sports, we found out that per hour of play in the same sport, women are four times more likely to tear their ACL than men. And that's where the difference, and that's why it looks like an epidemic. But the reality is women have a different shaped knee. They land and jump differently. Sometimes hormonal changes softens the ligaments during certain times. And so they are more likely to injure their ACL for a number of reasons. Um, and there's also an anatomy change where the, the notch where the ACL lives could be more A-shaped instead of U-shaped. Anyway, for all those reasons, women are more at risk. It turns out the way they cut and land can put extra stress on the ACL and you can learn a different style of cutting and landing for certain sports. And if you train and do it, you can reduce the risk. So you're absolutely right. If you got to avoid that, that cutting move that actually causes the isolated ACL and you can train someone to do it better, they will have lower rate of injury. You know, another thing I wonder about kids is when I was growing up, uh, none of the young boys, young men uh, hung out in gyms and, you know, they were athletic, you know, we played, we ran around, but we didn't pump iron. Nowadays, there's more and more of a tendency for young guys, you know, maybe 12, 13, 14, you know, they're, they're, they're taking protein powder and creatine. Uh, they want to be Arnold Schwarzenegger or, you know, the latest uh, uh, bodybuilding icon. Uh, and does that have potentially an adverse effect? Oh, for sure. And, and, you know, again, healthy sports are good, but excessive is problematic when you're actively growing for, for a number of reasons. But one is there's always the chance that people are doing hormonal manipulation, right? Yeah. And it's Which been shown welcome. time and time again that, what? It's, it's rife, you're right. you know, even among high school yeah. students. Yeah. 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 So, you know, steroids and growth hormone, and testosterone, all these things, they have real side effects. And it's, you know, more than we could get in today. There's a huge discussion about that. But just for suffice to say, the side effects include stunting long-term growth for some people. It includes shrinking of the testicles. You know, it includes other things that are not so great. Yeah. Um, for infertility. Anyway, yeah. Or, or yeah. infertility, and there are other things that can happen. So, 
those are dangerous side effects. So I think people are fooled by the short-term gain and not weighing the long-term side effects very well when they do these things in young kids. And the other thing is we talked a little bit about how the growth plate is softer than regular bone. Mm -hmm. So if you take a young kid who's still actively growing and you have them press very high weights with a lot of repetitions over time. They damage the plate. They can damage the growth plate. So there, in the old school, there were five different types of growth plate injuries, and one of them is just a transverse crush where you crush the cells that are actively growing, and in those, you stunt growth, right? But you don't see anything on an x-ray. They just have pain. Mm-hmm. They have an injury and pain, and x-ray looks normal because the growth plate itself on x-ray is clear. There's no calcium in it, so you can, if it cracked along its own line, it's not visible mm-hmm. on a plain x-ray. And those type of injuries they can stunt growth of the limb and that could be problematic. So I, I do believe that ultra heavy weights and repetition and the real bodybuilding in kids who are super young and still growing actively, it's probably not the best thing. Just like, you know, kids have had multiple concussions by the time they're 15 years old playing contact football. I just don't think that those things are, are to anyone's advantage at the end of the day. Exactly. Although that might be a little more controversial than saying pressing the heavy weights. Yeah. So, you know, for parents listening or grandparents listening and say they have a a child or grandchild who, you know, was in pain or has had injuries, you know, they're, they're, you know, chronic and causing limitation. uh, Can they just go to regular orthopedist or do they have to go to a pediatric orthopedist to address this? Because it sounds like, you know, you're a general orthopedist. You're pretty knowledgeable about all these problems. Yeah, I mean, I had the good fortune of training at a time where there were no specialties. Um, okay. I took one of the earliest sports fellowships available because, and at that time, they were not accredited because there was no fellowships. You know, it just it was just starting. Um, and we invented some of the instruments. So there were three things I used in the OR every day for shoulder arthroscopy that I actually invented myself. So it, it was really the beginning, you know, I don't want to say caveman days, but it was really the beginning of all these things. And then later on, the fellowships became accredited and it became a bigger deal. And and the funny thing is, when I came out, pediatric adult orthopedics was all part of the same specialty, so it didn't matter. I think nowadays, the younger guys coming out, they feel like they're more one or the other, or they do an extra fellowship in pediatric sports medicine or mm-hmm. just general pediatric medicine. But you got to remember, pediatric medicine in orthopedics is really much more about much more complicated problems like club foot and congenital hip disease and polio, which doesn't come around anymore too much in the United States. You rarely ever see it because uh, pretty much eradicated. But but cerebral palsy and those kinds of things, or muscular dystrophies and scoliosis, those things are much more pediatric orthopedic specialties and much more technical now. But the general pediatric injuries, you know, I broke my fibula, you know, I twisted my ankle, I have an ACL tear. Someone who's very good in sports medicine, who's trained, you know, over a long period of time, will have a lot of knowledge about these things because they've treated it over a long period of time. Um, and there's no substitute at the end of the day for actually doing it for a long period of time. You know, mm-hmm. if someone is trained for a year or two, they'll be an expert. They won't have 20 years of experience yet. So well, it's, it's, it's it a sounds, tricky. It sounds like if you go to a, a general orthopedist, you can at least get a diagnosis and possibly a referral if it's a very niche kind of problem. I, I met a, a guy on yeah, a bike ride recently uh, who uh, was a pediatric orthopedist who only did scoliosis surgery. That's day, you know, <laughs> 
24 seven scoliosis surgery. Yep. It was that specialized because that's a very, yep. very delicate uh, procedure. Uh, but uh, for Absolutely. ordinary stuff, I think, uh, you know, your your local orthopedist probably will, will do. Um, and is there a difference you know, when you say sports medicine? I mean, uh, are all sports medicine specialists orthopedists or are there sports medicine uh, physical therapists or are there sports medicine rehab doctors, uh, physiatrists, they used to be called? Uh, what's the difference? Well, let me go back half a step. You know, everyone is in the sport of life. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to do sports to tear your ACL, slipping on ice, carrying a bucket of, uh, you know, a bucket of paint, you know, on a wet surface or, you know, or playing a pickup game with your kids. You don't have to be a major athlete. Um, so, you know, the, the, the business of life is a sport. For some people, I call them working athletes. They have a very hard job and they might as well be an athlete because their job is that difficult. So what has happened is sports medicine for orthopedic surgeons has become the niche of people who understand ligament and cartilage problems, primarily in the knee, shoulder, sometimes the hip, um, maybe the ankle as well, and use a lot of arthroscopic techniques uh, to fix those things, plus the specialty of sports in general, right? So in my practice, I have athletes of every nature, if you will. I have kids, I have adults, I have working athletes, and I have the weekend warriors. I have them all in my practice. Um and I have people who have things that specifically need the skill set of arthroscopic surgery and didn't necessarily have a sports injury as well. And there's a whole host of things like that. Um, so sports sports is kind of funny because it's a very catchy term. People love that term. I'm considered a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon now more than ever because of the arthroscopic stuff I do. The reality is I have certification in multiple areas and I did general orthopedics first. So there's a whole wide range of things I can do, but sports medicine kind of fits it well right now for me. Um, having said all that, in other fields, sports medicine could mean a lot of other things. You know, you have a sports psychiatrist. That's a different thing, mm-hmm. oh. right? Yeah. Uh, right. And and a sports, you know, chiropractor would be something different. And, you know, a sports physical therapist. Physical therapy as a whole is pretty similar in all the areas, but some people like to feel that sports therapists will be more attuned to return to sports exercise. But most physical therapists say they can do that stuff. Um, so it is it is a nice term to use because I think people can hang their hook on it and say, oh, yeah, I need to go to the sports guy. Um, but it's really more about a skill set than sports per se. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like you have the diagnostic skill to assess something uh, and know when to hold and when to fold when it comes to, uh, you know, gentle physical therapy or rehabilitation therapy versus, uh, you know, going under the knife or, you know, going doing uh, arthroscopic surgery and, you know, uh, making an appropriate referral. Yeah, I think that's the key. You know, I I love to tell patients, and, and this was great for your listeners as well, you know, most diagnoses, most good diagnoses are made by a very careful history, a very good physical exam, and then plus or minus an x-ray, a plain x-ray. So many people jump to an MRI that shouldn't have it done. You know, that's yeah. that's sort of my pet peeve. You see someone who maybe isn't really versed in, in the injury you have, and their fallback is to get an MRI. And what I say to my students, and I teach medical students and residents at different times, you know, and over the years I've done many, many hours of teaching. What I say to the students is we never treat an x-ray, we treat a patient. Mm-hmm. And so 
I would say 90 to 95% of the time, I kind of know what the MRI might show. And I'm looking for fine details for planning because I'm getting the MRI because I think I need it to plan surgery, really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not because I'm groping and I don't know the answer. If I know the answer and I know the appropriate treatment, I often don't need the MRI. Now, if someone has course A and we go through the whole realm of stuff and you have therapy, injection, you know, medications, whatever we need, taping, brace, and you're not getting better and the answer just doesn't look right. Okay, you might be the 5 or 10% of patients that we really need an MRI to figure that out. But 90% of the time, I'm pretty confident I know what's wrong and then we make a plan from there. And that plan might include an MRI if we think this is a surgical problem, but it shouldn't be our first choice or a fallback position. It sounds like what you're saying is that structure and function are different because uh, there, there are actually some studies where uh, in the realm of back surgery where they did a bunch of MRIs on A, people with bad back pain, and B, asymptomatic people. And then they kind of shuffled the deck and they gave it to radiologists to interpret and guess which patients were the most pain. And they got it wrong. They got it wrong because they had what yeah, seemed like right. culprit lesions, you know, that would cause excruciating back pain, and the patients were fine. Alternatively, patients had seemingly normal MRIs. So the MRI is a guide. It's not the sine qua non of figuring out, you know, what to do for a problem. And in this country, you know, we, we do, you know, per capita, far more MRIs than any other country in the world at great expense. And uh, perhaps uh, sometimes leading to, uh, you know, misleading conclusions and, and maybe unnecessary interventions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and that's true for meniscal tears, too. Like if I say I have a meniscus or cartilage tear in my knee, right, more commonly people say I've torn my cartilage, but meniscus is the, the ring-shaped cartilages that help your knee stabilize other than your ligaments. And if you say take everyone over 65 or 70 years old, a large percentage of those patients will have relatively simple degenerative meniscal tears without trauma that are asymptomatic, they have no symptoms. And if you hurt your knee and then you get an MRI in those patients, instead of treating them non-operatively first, uh, if they have no meniscal signs, you're going to find something. And I'll say to my patients, I'll say, listen, do you want me to operate on you? And they say, no, why would you operate on me? It doesn't hurt that much. They say, well, why would I get an MRI then? Because the MRI is going to tell me you have a little meniscal tear there that you've had for the past 10 years. And it's going to say you need a surgery that I know you don't need and you don't want. So why are we getting the MRI? And then most in people fact, understand what I'm getting at. In fact, it's almost a universal finding right? that people, active people past a certain age will have abnormalities, uh, seemingly small tears uh, of, the, of the meniscus, of the cushioning uh, between the upper leg bone and the lower leg bone. That's right. But if you have mechanical symptoms and recurrent locking and swelling and I can feel the meniscus pop under my finger when I'm examining you and I twist your knee in a certain way and I feel that catch and you go, yeah, that's what hurts. Yeah. That's more likely to be mechanical. And then, okay, maybe we're talking about something that needs to be addressed uh, and you failed simple treatment too, you know, that you didn't get better. Then, okay, let's talk a little more seriously about whether or not you need an MRI or maybe even a surgery. But you kind of know already you're not getting anywhere with a simple treatment. So that's very helpful. And I think, you know, you make the good point that a large percentage of people have abnormal findings that don't correlate with their symptoms. So, again, going back to that, that great saying, you know, we treat patients, we don't treat MRIs. What you have in your story, your history, what you have on your exam, what I see in your x-ray and your MRI, I love them to line up correctly before I jump into a surgery. If they don't line up correctly and scratch my head three times, maybe I've missed something here, you know. 
So it's that correlation of all those things together that really helps me pin down on what's really, really wrong. Um, the other thing I want to mention really quickly about that is that sometimes people have knee pain, it's really their hip. And mm-hmm. that happens a lot more yeah. often than people know. And it's called referred pain because the old song, the hip bone is connected to the knee bone. It's one bone. It's the same bone. So some people have very strong referral. And I've had two or three patients over the years who've actually had a crack or a fracture in their hip mm. and complain bitterly of knee pain, bitterly, mm. so much so that the emergency room only took x-rays of their knee, sent them home. They can't walk. They come to my office. I take an x-ray of the hip. And I said, you know, you have a crack in your hip. Wow. And they almost don't believe you. <laughs> then you fix it and their pain goes away. And then they, they still don't believe you. <laughs> It's very, it's really something to wow. see when you see it. But I also try to teach the students that as well, that referred pain is a very important thing. And everyone knows the story that your left arm hurts, maybe you're having a heart attack, mm-hmm. right? Or your back hurts, your gallbladder, right? Or your back could cause numbness in your toes and you could have no back pain. So we know that certain things anatomically are hooked up and we know that your body, this, this is a great way to think of it. The GPS of your body knows your fingers, your hands, your skin, your eyes, everything very well on the outside. But you can't see your kidneys. You can't see your heart. You can't see the inside of your knee. So the map is not as good. Mm -hmm. So you think about, like, if I'm trying to find the GPS of what the inside of my knee looks like, I might feel like it's shin pain. I might feel like it's hip pain. I might feel like my knee pain is the other way around. So that's what I tell people. It's like the GPS inside is not as good as the outside. Right. So the moral of the story is, uh, you know, before you uh, consult Dr. Google or even read the book, uh, the knee and shoulder handbook, the keys to a pain free yeah. active life is still it's hard to self-diagnose. Uh, they, there's a saying, he who hath himself for a doctor hath a fool for a doctor. You know, maybe see a professional and, uh, you know, get an exam and uh, a workup and figure out what's really going on. All right. Good point at which to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts, uh, Dr. Uh, and we're going to um, uh, continue on, on the subject of uh, the more common type of orthopedic problems, problems that uh, hit uh, middle-aged and seniors. Uh, 